It's always good to see you. It's always um, a privilege for me that you would invite me or welcome me as your pastor to preach to you. And it's always a privilege for me to preach the Word of God before the Lord, to think that He would have been so kind and uh, condescending is to call me to bring the Scripture to you. Now today I'd like to uh, ask you to open up your Bibles to Job chapter 2. And I'm going to ask you to keep your Bibles open because we're going to be looking at a number of passages. I'll be reading a number of verses from Job as we go through this, uh, as we go through this sermon. And so it, essentially this sermon is Scripture punctuated by preaching or uh, you could say it's... Uh, um, preaching punctuated by scripture. Um, I think the first way is the best way to put it. But I'd like to read to you from these last verses of Job chapter 2 first, which is Job chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. Now we know at this point, Job has been beset by a series of terrible calamities. Uh, he has had all of his, his herds wiped out, his farm animals uh, wiped out. All of his caravanning camels have been wiped out. All of his children have been destroyed. He's had attacks from the north, from the south, from the east, and from above. And, and he has just been, uh, and he, yet he's held on to his faith. He has not, uh, he has not sinned against God. He has, he has said, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But now he has been afflicted once more, and he's been afflicted personally and physically, uh, medically, uh, and, and his body has been reduced to an agonizing, uh, just an agonizing condition of blisters and pustules and scabs. And that's where we pick it up in chapter 2, verse 11. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place, uh, Eliphaz the Timonite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. And they made an appointment together to come to show Job's sympathy and to comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept. And they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. And no one spoke a word to him. For they saw that his suffering was very great. Let's pray together. Father, I ask you now that you would make the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Uh, amen. These verses that I just read uh, just provoke a question, um, and you probably have already raised it to yourself, but if you were the friend of a man who was so horribly blistered, his face twisted in agony, so that he was beyond recognition. In fact, even beyond looking human. Would you go to him? Would you go to him? Would you be willing to enter into his agony? Would you suffer the suffering of the friend who watches a sufferer?
and can do nothing to stop it. Would you sit with that person for seven days and seven nights in silence because his affliction was so great that it caused you to fall silent? There was nothing you could say. Would you be that friend? Job's friends uh, come in for a lot of criticism, as you well know. And I want to make this point. That's not my starting point with you at all. I mean, I think that Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar were remarkable friends of Job's. Uh, Their goal, verse 11 says it so plainly in chapter 2, was to show Job's sympathy and comfort. And sympathy literally refers to coming alongside Job and shaking with him, staggering with him really entering into his suffering. Though others would find him too repulsive, too frightening to look at, they would draw near. They would expose themselves to the evil that Job was so personally experiencing in order to show him sympathy. They would not abandon this man. And though it might leave them spiritually and emotionally and physically exhausted themselves, and it must have, they would not abandon him. These three men bound themselves together to do what individually they may never have had the courage to do, to make themselves present to comfort this suffering man. Now chapters 4 through 27 record their interactions with Job. And in these chapters, there are three cycles in which each of these men basically speaks and Job responds. And so when you go from chapters 4 through chapters 27, you have Eliphaz, Job's response, Bildad, Job's response, Zophar, Job's response. Eliphaz, Job's response, Bildad, Job's response. Zophar, Job's response. And then finally, Eliphaz, Job's response. Bildad, Job's response. And Zophar remains silent. And the sum of the matter is, I'm summing it up, but the sum of the matter is, when you look at all these chapters, is that if the goal of these three friends was to comfort Job, they had failed miserably. And this was absolutely made clear from the start of the second cycle. It was clear really by the end of the first cycle, but Job made it clear from the start of the second cycle. After Eliphaz spoke, Job replied in Job chapter 16, verses 1 through 3. We read, Then Job answered and said, I have heard many such things. Miserable comforters are you all. Miserable comforters are you all. Shall windy words have an end? What provokes you that that you answer? Miserable comforters are you all. What provokes you that you answer? I have to say that when I entered the pastoral ministry, uh, I had one fear that eclipsed all other fears. And that fear was that I would face Job. That I would face a deep sufferer crying out, why? And I would be bound to answer. 
I wasn't plagued, honestly, at the prospect of dealing with the heresy in the church. I wasn't plagued at the prospect of dealing with uh, immorality. I wasn't uh, particularly, didn't feel daunted at the prospect of facing hostility or division. It was the prospect of comforting someone who was suffering horribly, of being faced with that question. And the reason was because like Job's friends, I could think of many things to say. They said many things. I could think of many things to say, but I wasn't convinced they would work. In fact, when I thought of what I might say to someone, I was convinced it wouldn't work with me. And the reason I was reluctant was because when you, when you seek to comfort a deep sufferer, not someone going in for their appendix to be removed, but when you, when you seek to comfort a deep sufferer, evil is confronting you head on. You have to face evil head on. You face it, and, and you know, there's just absolutely nothing abstract about it as when philosophers write about the problem of evil. This is not a problem. This is a horrifying reality. And you're being asked, why is it happening? Well, Job's friends took a huge misstep. And I want us to consider what their misstep was because it is a pitfall that can be easily avoided if you recognize it as a pitfall. When Job, when Job broke his silence in chapter 3, five times he cried out, why? Let me look at Job 3 with you for a moment. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, let the day perish on which I was born and the night that said a man is conceived. Let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. And then he began to ask, why? Five times, actually. Verse 11, why did I not die at birth? Come out from the womb and expire. Verse 12, why did the knees receive me? Or why the breasts that I should nurse? 16, or why was I not as a hidden, stillborn child? Verse 20, why is light given to me who is in misery and life to the bitter in soul? Verse 23, why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? Time after time after time, Job is asking, why, 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 why? And in response, I'll just put it this way, Job's friends took the bait they thought it was up to them to come up with an answer but they didn't know the answer only God knew the answer and the truth is that Job did not expect them to try and answer that question think back with me to Job 16 miserable comforters are you all 
Shall windy words have an end? What provokes you that you answer? He was not looking for them to answer that question. He knew that was not a question that they could answer. It was not directed really at them. And yet, feeling they had to have an answer from the general truths that were available to them, such as God is just, humanity is fallen and sinful, from proverbial wisdom, those who plow iniquity, those who sow trouble will reap the same. You will reap what you sow. That's chapter 4, verse 8. From that kind of general knowledge about God, general wisdom, and from that kind of proverbial knowledge, they began to fabricate answers as to why God in particular was permitting Job to suffer. And that is when they made matters worse. Given that God is just, Given that men like Job, even Job, commits sin, given that people reap what they sow, their answers to Job's questions very quickly became efforts to blame Job, expressions of suspicion, honestly. Their counsel progresses from advising Job to accept God's reproof and repent of of sin, that's Eliphaz in chapters 4 and 5, to dismissing God, uh, Job's words as a great wind, that's Bildad in chapter 8, verse 2, to telling Job that he deserved worse. That was Zophar in chapter 11, verses 4 to 6, to making outrageous accusations about the kind of sinner Job was. Job withheld food from the hungry. He sent widows away empty. That's Eliphaz in chapter 22, verses 5 through 9. So there's growing intensity. There's this growing animosity. There's this growing hostility. Because Job insists that he did nothing to deserve the suffering that he was undergoing. But because they could not stand the reality of that, because it was true, because they could not stand to face that themselves. The reality of this undeserved agony. They, they responded as they did. It really was an extremely defensive response. It was not, it was not an attempt to Defend God's honor, as you know, if you read Job, God does not see that as a defense of his honor. He commands Job at the end to offer sin sacrifices for his friends because they had sinned. You see, all Job really wanted was some sort of understanding, affirmation that his suffering really was terrible. And that he wasn't to be blamed for asking that question. Why? He was looking for someone to be with him through the journey. But they weren't willing. They wanted to distance themselves from that suffering. Really, they dismissed the suffering. They they really did dismiss it. They minimized it. And that was the issue. 
The other thing I answer, why? Well, we can only do that if we become quite abstract, if we become quite impersonal. In fact, if we, we can only really do that if we kind of depersonalize what you're going through, Job, which is really to regard you or speak with you as, less, as if you were less than a full human being created in God's image. So Job protests in Job 7. Verse 5, my flesh is clothed with worms and dirt. My skin hardens and breaks out afresh. Verses 13 to 15 of Job 7, when, when I say my bed will comfort me, my couch will ease my complaint, then you, he's talking to God, you scare me with dreams, you terrify me with visions so that I would choose strangling and death rather than these bones. His friends won't deal with that. Job's friends were sidetracked by Job's crying out why. In trying to answer that question, they fell into a cruel presumption against Job. God was not punishing Job. And they fell into a very false presumption about God himself. I mean, God's purposes behind specific events especially calamities, especially suffering, the suffering he permits, God's specific purposes are not, are not self-evident. And usually what happens is we fill in the blank with our prejudices about that individual. When people are suffering, their question why is really shorthand for why is this necessary? Why must I suffer this way? It's not a why question in search of a cause. You know, I'm sorry to tell you, you have cancer, or you don't remember it because you're knocked out, but you were in a car accident, or you just have bad genes when it comes to cholesterol. His question was that much more profound why. It's that why question in search of meaning. It's that why question in search of purpose. It's why for the sake of understanding. So that suffering makes sense. Because when suffering makes sense, when it is purposeful, when it holds out some hope that it will turn out for something good or something better, for me or for others, it's far easier to bear. That's the why question that Job was asking. Is this suffering in order to make me a better person? Is this suffering God will use? Will God use this suffering to bring someone to Christ? It, it, is this suffering about proving my faithfulness and my love to God? Am I, am, I, am I actually like one of those early Christians facing the lions in a filled coliseum? Only in this case the lions are my affliction and the theater is the heavenly realms filled with, with angels and demons. Is that what this is about? And I'm going to say something to you personally today. I, apart from the grander purpose from all eternity and how this works in with God's great plan, which I cannot understand, which he's not revealed to me, I really do believe that love for God the testing of our faith really is at issue in our suffering. That it's highly significant. 
And that these opening chapters of Job with Satan coming to God really attest to that and point to that. I think for me, the question when I, when I suffer and the question I think about when other people suffer is not so much what is God's purpose for the suffering. It's what will my purpose be in the suffering. I do want to prove my love for God. My trust in him. Peter was very serious when he wrote about tested faith, purified through affliction like like gold ore is purified through fire, that it is more precious than gold in God's sight, that it will be found to result in praise and honor and glory when Christ is revealed. This is truth that the Holy Spirit uses to comfort. This is, wis- this is wisdom from God. It's not specific revelation, but it is wisdom from God that's everywhere taught in Scripture that I believe applies to every believer. And this is your takeaway one from this sermon. There is something we can say that is significant, that is meaningful, that is true. But how do we convey this message of meaning and purpose for, for the suffering to a belief? How do we convey it? And I want to say that it begins, I think, very simply by saying to the sufferer, our loved one, what the Holy Spirit is already saying to his or her heart. By saying to them what with the noise of their pain, the distraction of their pain, and the shrieks of the devil are trying to drown out. Saying them, simply saying to them, God loves you. I just want you to know and assure you that God loves you. I know God loves you. I know God loves you because... He promises too. He's loved you. Think about all the ways in, God, in your life that God has provided for you and cared for you when you thought it wouldn't happen. And he is no less faithful. He'll be no less faithful to love you today and tomorrow than he has been in the past. He loves you. And as you love him, even from your agony, angels look on with awe and heaven rejoices over you. And in spite of your agony, or maybe because of your agony, the thing that I want you to know, I'm utterly convinced of this, that eye has not seen, nor is ear heard, nor has it ever entered into your mind all that God has prepared for you who love it. I think that's the way you talk to people. And that is takeaway number two. Don't speak in terms of Proverbs. Don't speak in terms of principles speak to the heart heart to heart so that they experience what you're saying to them as personally as they are experiencing their suffering now if someone has a cough and they're being treated with antibiotics and everything's going to be better or they have a broken wrist they've got a little cast on for a couple of weeks Sure, you can all say, yeah, these things happen 
to people and that it'll get better. But the deeper the suffering, the more personally is experienced. And when you speak to people about their suffering, you must speak deeply personally to them in ways perhaps you don't speak to other people because you're, you know, if you're a shy person or you know, concerned about propriety, don't worry about propriety. Speak personally. Speak from your heart to their heart what is true. And don't speak it like you're reading it or you heard it somewhere. You speak it like you mean it because it's eternal truth. For me, the most cherished hymn line of all hymns I know is from the last verse of O Sacred Head Now Wounded. It's a prayer I pray for myself many times every year. And it's the verse, and it ends this way, O make me thine forever, and should I fainting be, Lord, let me never, never outlive my love for thee. And we have a certain comfort, you see, that not only, a comfort that's not only for sufferers, but it's for the friends of sufferers. That God will do just that. That he will not permit them to suffer beyond what they can withstand. He will provide them with whatever is necessary in order to endure. And even if it may not be appropriate or seem sensitive to say that to the sufferer at the time, it's important for you to remind yourself of that. It's very important for you to remind yourself from that. Because the last thing you want to do is to enter into the despair that they are feeling. The last thing you want to do, the last thing you want to do is to give up the hope that they have and that you have for them. Because even when they can't hold it up to themselves and you have to hold it to their breast, you hold it to their breast. You don't give it up. God will not allow them to be tempted, tested beyond which they can withstand. I have to say that we have a great advantage as comforting friends that Job's friends did not have, and this will be our third takeaway. You know, throughout Job, our sufferer, Job, in the book, he cries out for an arbiter. He cries out for a mediator. He cries out for a redeemer, a redeemer for himself with the Lord, an arbiter who could be the go-between between himself and God, who would plead Job's innocence before God. In Job 9, verses 30 to 33, he wrote or said, if I, this sounds so much like Isaiah, doesn't it? Now listen to it. If I wash myself with snow and cleanse my hands with lye, which makes everything white, you know, right? if I wash myself with snow and cleanse my hands with lye, yet you will plunge me into a pit and my own clothes will abhor me. I will still be unclean. Job needs a mediator to make sure that though his skins may be as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they may be red like crimson, they will be as white as linen. He goes on. For God is not a man as I am that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. 
But folks, in Christ, our mediator, our arbiter, our redeemer has come. And his blood shed for our sin persuasively pleads to God to forgive us our sins and to free us completely from whatever wrath we deserved or from what other wrath we fear. And oftentimes in the midst of great pain and great torment, people fear that it's just the beginning of the wrath they deserved. Even if they've walked with Christ for many years, we can be overwhelmed. We can be overwhelmed. But we have a we can say to that Job, dear Job, you have an arbiter, you have a mediator. He has already come and he has completely, completely erased the record of your sin and death before God lest he pour his wrath on you. That it will never happen and that is not happening now. So what am I saying? Contrary to Job's friends who thought they had to answer that big why question, which Job really didn't expect them to answer. What a surprise to me in the early years of ministry when people would say, why is this happening to me? They'd ask me, why is this happening to me? And I would speak and was learning and growing, beginning to learn to speak in some of the terms I'm talking to you in today, and they never returned to it. But Kurt, you didn't say why this is, because they didn't expect me to know the answer. They wanted comfort, real comfort. So our Savior assures us that our sufferer is not suffering because of his or her sin some sort of punishment or wrath. And apart from the purposes of God, which he has not reveal, revealed, I believe we do know that proving our love and our faith is always at issue in our suffering. That God's wise counsel for us is that when we suffer, suffer for Christ, suffer for the glory of God. There is an escape And that escape that God promises may not come a minute too soon, but it will not come a moment too late. And although God's ultimate purpose for the sufferer, as in why this, why me, why now, may be left in his hidden counsel, his purpose for you and for me is clear. To remain the true friend of that sufferer to draw near to them spiritually, emotionally, verbally, physically, to protest every loss they suffer, to protest every insult to their humanity by loving them with the love of Christ. This is God's assurance. This is God's wisdom. This is God's love. And this assurance and this wisdom and this love of God from you. These are what the deep sufferer needs. Needs to hear and needs to feel. Not attempts to answer those questions which are God's alone to answer. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, there are things
I really believe that we will we'll never regret. And I don't believe we will ever regret listening to Joe, both positive and negatively, in terms of poor example, good example, but to derive from your holy word that counsel which will motivate us past our natural resistance or our revulsion or our fear to be a friend to the deep sufferer. We'll never regret it. And we will never regret being with them and loving them. They will deeply appreciate it no matter how they're reacting out of their pain. And this is part of our calling in Christ. This is how we help one another live well, suffer well, and die well to your eternal glory. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.